My name is Benjamin Verbacek. I have the privilege of reading the scripture passage this morning. It comes from Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. It'll be on the screen or you can follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to be reading from verse 23 through the end of the chapter in verse 28. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. Excuse me, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's word. Good morning, community. Thank you, Benjamin, for reading that. Um, As Mike prayed, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, work this morning. And uh, in this series that we are continuing that we started last week called um, All Who Are Weary, and uh, we're going to be talking about the different idols of our heart that have us weary and laid down and see how Jesus offers us comfort from those idols and how his yoke is better. Well, if I were to ask you this morning, what is the greatest threat to the spiritual life of Christians in our country today? I would be intrigued to hear what you would say. Uh, You might say the moral degradation of our society. You might say the breakdown of the family You might say the mixing of Christian faith with a sort of nationalistic love of country such that the two become indistinguishable. But my suspicion is that not many of us, and I would say probably almost none of us, would answer the way that one prominent Christian thinker answered this question when he was asked. When this man was asked what the greatest threat to the spiritual life of the American Christian is, he said this, Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry? I mean, really? Like, have you seen our world today? (laughs) Hurry. That might strike you as silly, maybe even a little bit naive, to say that hurry is the greatest threat to the spiritual life of Christians in our day. But then if you begin to ponder it for even a few seconds you start to realize that there is more depth to this statement than you might have originally thought. So for instance, how do most people respond? How do you respond when people ask you how you're doing? I know my typical response is, oh, I'm fine, just busy, right? Or what is the first question we ask after we meet someone? What do you do? Or if you're in college, what's your major? Or if you're late in high school, what college are you going to? All surrounding our work. 
Or let's shift gears a little bit and talk about our own spiritual lives. Do you feel like you have enough time in your life for prayer, for deep, rich communion with God? How about this one? What truths do our children implicitly pick up on about Jesus and Christianity based upon our pace of life? Or what about this simple question? Are you tired? (laughs) I know I would answer yes. (laughs) But when we think for even a few brief moments, this thinker's words about hurry start to sound less like a wild diagnosis from a naturalistic health guru and more like a diagnosis that makes sense of and associates a wide variety of symptoms that affect our whole self. In Matthew 11, which we started our series with last week, Jesus invites all of us to come to him to find rest. And this morning in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see Jesus deal with the Sabbath, That ancient Jewish practice that was commanded by God in which people would set aside Saturday, the seventh and final day of the week, as a day of rest and worship. But what's interesting is that the same events recorded in Mark chapter 2 are the very same events that are recorded in Matthew chapter 12, the immediate section after the end of Matthew 11 where Jesus invites all of us to come to him who are weary and heavy laden. And I think what that tells us is that when Jesus speaks those words, what he is inviting us into is the same reality that the Sabbath day points us to. Real, deep rest, peace, satisfaction for your souls. We need this peace. We need this rest. And so let's run to Jesus this morning. Well, turning to our text in Mark 2, Jesus here has another run-in with the religious leaders. And this is the culmination of a series of run-ins that he has with the religious leaders throughout Mark chapter 2. And this one involves the Sabbath. And on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples are walking along, likely traveling somewhere, and they're picking heads of grain and eating it from the field, which was a practice in the Old Testament law that was permitted for travelers and for the poor. It was a way of caring for them. But this act of picking the grain violated the religious leaders' stringent tradition that they had built up around the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. Now, it can be easy for us as Christians today to read the Gospels and to dunk on the Pharisees right? To, to just trash them for being these legalistic, rule-following folks. But we have to ask the question, why did they have all these laws around the Sabbath? I, I don't think the Pharisees were people that just really liked rules. They had a purpose for what they were doing. Why did they have these laws around the Sabbath? Well, to them, I would argue, The Sabbath was the religious practice of practices. The Sabbath was the big thing. You see, in Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, particularly in verses 24 to 27, Jeremiah prophesies to the people that judgment is going to come upon Israel for their failure to observe the Sabbath unless they begin to practice the Sabbath again. You see, their Sabbath observance was tied up with God bringing in his kingdom and sending his promised king. 
And you see, it's for this reason that they tie up these heavy yokes of Sabbath burden on the backs of their people. They have the hope that if all the people obey the Sabbath, then God will send their promised king and restore them. But these guys miss the point entirely. And that's what Jesus points out to them. And you got to love the way that Jesus responds to these guys, right? He basically says to a group of pastors, hey, have you guys ever read the Bible? (laughs) Have you ever read the scriptures? (laughs) Have you ever read 1 Samuel chapter 21 where David is on the run from Saul and he is the anointed king has to go eat the holy bread of the temple just to survive because his life was in danger. Have you ever read that story, Pharisees? What Jesus is saying is you guys are missing the point, right? The promised king that you hoped for, the goal of all of your Sabbath striving, the one who is greater than David, is right in front of you. And your stringent rules are not the focus right now. The true fulfillment of the Sabbath is right here. He is the one that your focus should be upon. Jesus. What the Pharisees do here would be like us attending a cocktail party with the president and being really preoccupied because a picture of the president was turned just a little bit cockeyed on the wall and we kept being obsessed with it being straight. But the president's in the room. Jesus is in the room and he's saying, stop your religious striving and focus on me. I'm the whole point of the Sabbath. And maybe you you grew up in a legalistic church context where the Sabbath meant staying at church all day. It meant no smiling or dancing. And it meant a list of extra rules that you had to keep. And this passage might be really important to you because it says the Sabbath is not about legalistic rule keeping. The Sabbath is about freedom and joy in the Messiah. That's what the Sabbath is about. But you see, I I think for most of us, If we don't look closely and really understand what's going on here, we can easily misunderstand this story of Jesus. See, I'm afraid that we all, including myself, have so quickly used this story and similar accounts in the Gospels to write off the Sabbath that we may be tempted to trade one heavy-laden burden for another, one heavy-laden human tradition for another. You see, just as equally oppressive as pharisaical Sabbath-keeping is the human tradition that we blindly follow in the Western world today that says, you don't need rest. Your body is a machine. Just keep on grinding. Keep on going. And for all of us who are worried that stopping to rest might cause us to fall back into legalism, let me just ask you this question. How is not resting working out for you? As a Christian author, Adam Mabry, puts it, it's not rest that threatens to oppress you, but your refusal to. Now, I don't want to say something unilaterally for all of us here, but I do know most of you, and I talk with you, and I know myself, and we are a worn out and weary bunch. We are exhausted and anxious, and restless, and tired. Many of us here today, whether we would describe ourselves like this or not, are workaholics. We can't put our work down. We can't focus on our home life or anything else at all. 
right? We can't even put our phones down while we pour milk on our cereal at home because the important work email or text might come through. Not saying that from personal experience or anything. I may have spilled milk the other morning while trying to pour it on my cereal. Many of us who describe ourselves as tired are not workaholics, but we have this experience of having a busyness of the soul. We're restless. We can't sit still. We always have to have music on in the background, or we always have to be texting someone or scrolling through Facebook. Our lives are filled with constant distraction because we are restless, anxious, busy in our hearts. And yet others of us simply just bend and buckle under the weight of living in a 100-mile-per-hour world. Our boss gives us another impossible deadline. Our kids have another soccer practice or game on Saturday and Sunday that we have to travel for, and we just want to scream out, stop, enough, I want to be done with this. In the beginning, as Mike read in the Garden of Eden, we read that God created everything in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And the picture that we're supposed to see here is of God as as a king who is done with his work and now he is sitting on his throne in his creation at rest. See, this passage is telling us that God is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the king of creation. And God sets boundaries for the work of Adam and Eve in the garden. He doesn't say their work is bad, but he sets this pattern of six and one of rest built into the pattern of creation. And God also gives Adam and Eve the boundary for their good that they could have every tree in the garden except for one. And yet, what do they do? They doubt God's good boundaries for them. You see, they eat of that one tree because they think that what God forbids will truly satisfy him. They think that they know better than God what will bring them lasting happiness. But as we know, this results only in cursing. As Genesis 3 tells us, there's a curse put on our labor. And there's a curse put on childbearing. And ultimately, there's a curse put on our very life. That we are destined for death. And ever since then, we, like Adam and Eve, think that we are lords of our own life, that we are lords of our own work and of our own time, that we are lords of the Sabbath. See, we long for the satisfaction of Eden, of peace and rest with God, and we think we know the best way to get there. So ultimately, all of our busyness ultimately comes from an attempt to bring the satisfaction and rest and wholeness of Eden into our own lives on our own terms. So when we work 70 hours a week, when we strive as parents to provide every single little possible opportunity for our kids on sports teams or extracurriculars or academics, or when we use all of our time to get caught up in feuds on Facebook or binge watch Netflix or watch college football all day, we are seeking to enter back into the garden and to find satisfaction. But we're doing it on our own terms. See, in doing this, we, like Adam and Eve, are disregarding God's good boundaries around our lives, showing us the pattern of six days of work and one day of rest. 
And ultimately, when we live our lives like that, I think we know this, we feel the effects of the curses of Eden in our lives by our efforts to satisfy ourselves. And this is why so many of us feel like zombies who have fallen victim to the God of busyness. In the end, we have the same problem as Adam and Eve. We think that we are lords of our lives and that we can achieve satisfaction on our own terms and not God's. And it's here that I would actually depart from what that Christian thinker said at the beginning of our sermon about hurry being the greatest threat to spiritual life. I think hurry is not our biggest problem, although I would argue that it's the most prominent manifestation in our day of the larger underlying problem. The larger problem, the biggest threat to the spiritual lives of Christians today is that we think we know better than God how to attain wholeness, peace, and rest. But Jesus shows us a better way here in Mark chapter 2. Jesus shows us that God's boundaries are good for us. This is what he says in verse 27. If you would read that again with me. It says, And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, if the Pharisees in the first century needed to hear that man was not made for the Sabbath, we need to hear that the Sabbath was made for man in our day. Notice, Jesus doesn't seem to really want to press into the particulars of the Sabbath. He's content to just say, hey, I'm here And then the Sabbath is good and made for you, and then just leave it at that. He doesn't press into all the particulars that we want him to here. He doesn't say, hey, so this means you don't have to practice this, or hey, you need to keep doing this. He just leaves that on the table and says, I'm here. But what he does say and does acknowledge is that God created a pattern of work and rest into his universe, and he invites us to live along the grain of that universe. Jesus invites us into a world where we don't have to play God any longer. Here's the, the beauty of stopping to rest is that it reminds us all that we are not that big of a deal. We are not as big of a deal as we think we are. Right? The world will keep on spinning and this church will keep on operating if I take a day off. If I take a week off, that's the beauty of why churches and organizations have sabbatical policies. It says, this place is going to still keep going, you know? One day when I get a sabbatical, Lord willing, I'll go and I'll come back and this church will probably be thriving more than it was when I left. That's the beauty of it. We don't have to feel the weight of having to play God. We don't have to play God for our family by providing them with an endless supply of money or by giving our kids every single possible opportunity. We don't have to play God by trying to satisfy ourselves, jumping from different forms of entertainment all day long to feel satisfied. Jesus is saying to us that the rest pointed to in the Sabbath is good for us because rhythms of rest force us to recognize that God is the Lord of the Sabbath, not us. And we need this reminder far more than we realize, far more often than we realize. But while all that is true, I think we would all also recognize that no no matter how many weeks in a row we rest with our families on Sundays, And no matter how many things we X out of our schedule in order to submit them in our time to God, 
We are not in Eden. We are not at rest. We're not experiencing the satisfaction and fellowship with God in peace and wholeness. And we all know that we can't get there on our own. We know that we can't Sabbath ourselves back to the rest of Eden. And you see, this is where I think we get to the bottom of Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 2. Let me read verse 27 again and along with it, verse 28. It says, And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. It's so easy to read over that and to miss the radical nature of what Jesus is saying right there, right? Who did we say was Lord of the Sabbath? Well, Genesis 2 says it's God. God is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a claim here by Jesus to be God. He is claiming to be on par with God as Lord of the Sabbath. And this is exactly why They have another scuffle over the Sabbath in the very next section at the beginning of Mark 3. And then the Pharisees start to work on their plot to kill Jesus. They get what he's saying here. But this is not only a statement about Jesus' identification with God, but it's also a claim about his identification with us as human beings. See, Jesus uses this title here of himself, the Son of Man. And among other things, when Jesus uses this title, he is calling himself the truly human one, the the new Adam, in a sense. You see, this title was a claim that not only was Jesus in charge of the Sabbath, but that as the the truly human one, he can lead the rest of us human beings into that rest that we all long for. And that's exactly what Jesus did throughout his life. You see, Jesus worked throughout his life to roll back these curses of Genesis chapter 3 by healing the sick, by raising the dead, and by forgiving sinners. And his life work culminates in his death on the cross where he takes those curses upon himself, literally bearing the thorns and thistles of this fallen world upon his brow. He finished his work on Friday before the Sabbath and cried out, it is finished. And then his body rested in the grave on the Sabbath day. But then on the eighth day, on the first day of a new week, Jesus rose from the dead, signifying that this age of toil and sin and death are no match for the Lord of the Sabbath. See, he did the work that you and I could never do in order to bring us into true rest, deep, soul-satisfying rest, which cures that busyness and anxiety of our hearts a rest in which you have peace and fellowship with God. Jesus bore the heavy burdens of this world and in exchange offers us the easy and light yoke of his kingdom, of true satisfaction, of true rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Not just because he is God, but because he died and he rose again, creating a whole new way of being human. And so what's the, what, is, what does this mean for us? What's the promise of this Sabbath rest, of Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath for us as his people? Well, I think it promises us three things. It promises us a hope for every day of our lives, a hope for a future day of our lives, 
and a hope for one day out of each week of our lives. So first, the promise of Sabbath for every day. So if Jesus really resurrected and really reigns as Lord of the Sabbath, and you are really his, his, he really invites you to himself, and you taste of him in faith, you are Jesus's. That means that in one sense, every day of your life is a Sabbath. So think about this. His cry on the cross of it is finished is the mantra of our life in Christ. Do you see the heart of Jesus in this for you? He's inviting you to take his easy yoke every day and live with a soul satisfaction in him. At a level where you're not identified by how much work you get done. You're not identified by your meager daily output, but by his infinitely fruitful output on your behalf. Jesus defines you, not your work. This means you don't have to justify your existence by your efforts at your job or at home taking care of your kids. This means that you can come home from work free to love your family no matter what the day was like because you have a peace you can't earn and a peace you can't lose. This means that your entire life is defined by rest. See, in this new world that's opened up by Jesus' resurrection, you don't work for rest You work, you live your whole life from rest, from the place of satisfaction in Jesus. Each day in a life with Jesus, you have available for you a rest deeper than any sleep that you could long for. And there are days where I long for some deep sleep. And in Jesus, you have that. And even as you toil in this world, As things are hard, in Jesus, you are seated in the heavenly throne room where God sits as king and now where Jesus sits at rest, reigning. You are there in him, no matter how hard your weeks might be. That's what you have available to you in Christ. But there's also a promise for a future day. Because we recognize that this this, this world is hard and that our work is hard. And that's why Jesus promises us that there will be a future day where we will be with him in the fullness of this rest. Right? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 talks about this. It says, So then there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. See, on, on the days when the cares of this world overrun you, or you feel like you're going to need to tape your eyelids open just to make it to lunchtime, You can be hopeful and assured that rest is coming for you. Rest is promised to you in Christ. Total rest, body and soul. And because of this, we can recognize the short nature of our toil here on earth. Right, That eternal rest puts in perspective our earthly toils. That's what gives us the ability to keep on going even when life is impossibly difficult. But what's so hard is keeping that hope before our eyes, right? Keeping that hope before us in a world where the monsters of productivity and consumerism and entertainment threaten to chew us up and spit us out. And so how do we cultivate that hope? How do we cultivate a hope for that future day of rest? Well, that's what I think the third promise of Sabbath is largely all about. 
that the Sabbath promises us, our true Sabbath in Jesus promises us rest one day out of each week. And now I recognize this is where all the questions come in, right? Which day should be the Sabbath? Am I allowed to work on the Sabbath? What am I allowed to do? Does it mean, does it mean that I'm in sin if I miss a Sunday at church? Right? Depending on your background and your life experience, there could be millions of questions stirred up by this. And I'm not going to talk through any of them at this point in my sermon. See me afterwards. I would love to talk with you about those things and wrestle through those together. But here is one thing to consider. Who defines and controls my time? Who is it that owns my time? The, the writer Andrew Sullivan, uh, in a piece entitled, I Used to Be a Human Being, that he wrote for the New Yorker magazine a few years ago, he, he writes this, commenting on how Sabbath-keeping in our society is dead within, within our culture at large, that the Sabbath-keeping is, a, is an antedated practice. He says, Sabbath-keeping reflected a now-battered belief that a sustained spiritual life is simply unfeasible for most mortals without the refuge from noise and work to buffer us and remind us who we really are. Do you get what he's saying there? Spiritual life is impossible, near impossible, he says, without a refuge from the noise and work that buffers us and reminds us who we really are. Church, practicing a weekly day of rest in a secular culture is a declaration that travel sports teams and bottom lines and corporations and the National Football League do not control my, do not control my time and do not tell me who I truly am. They don't give me my ultimate sense of purpose and identity. Only the Lord of the Sabbath gets to do that for me. See, throw out all those religious preconceived notions that you might have about a Sabbath day being rigid and, and strict and straight-jacketed, right? The, the day of rest is a day when we resist the pull of this world's systems, defining who we are by what we do, how much we give and put out into the world. It invites us into rest and worship. If you're hesitant about taking up a weekly Sabbath rest practice, here's the best argument I could make for you setting aside in your schedule a day to rest each week. Do you want a taste of heaven each week? Then take a Sabbath. That's the biblical picture and imagery of what the Sabbath is. It's the closest thing that we have here on earth to what heaven will be like, what the new creation will be like when we're fully at rest It's a Sabbath day that allows us to cultivate a hope in the midst of all the noise and all the chaos of this world where we are literally being turned into robots through our phones of a future day when our soul will be at rest. It promises us something better. And I don't know personally if there's a way that I can keep up that hope unless I shut all that stuff out and say, I need to focus on rest and on worship. That's what's offered to you in the Sabbath. Jesus gives you a chance to set aside a day for refreshment and communion with him and with others. And there's a million forms this could take. It could take a million different, there could be a million ideas for how you practice this. And I would just encourage you, talk, pray, be creative as a family. Don't feel like you're straitjacketed. 
But Jesus offers you something in one day of rest as well. As I close this this morning, I want to invite you this morning, wherever you're at, however tired you are or weary you are, to come to Jesus and experience his light and easy load. What he has for you is better. When you look into his eyes, you see the one who gives you rest. So church, I'm going to encourage you this morning, don't take another second. If Jesus is calling you this morning, come to him. Find rest in him. If you need prayer, Mike is up here. I'll be up here after the service. Benjamin's up here. We would love to pray with you. And together, to try to look towards Jesus, keep our eyes in hope on the one who is our Sabbath, who is our rest, who will be our rest and our fortress and our stronghold and our peace for all of eternity. Let's run to him. Let me pray and invite the worship team back up. Father, thank you for the promise of rest that is found in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that in a world of noise, when we're distracted, when we're hurried, when we feel like we're just going to crash into our bed every night, that you promise us something better. Not just for the future, but for life right now. That we might have a taste of what it looks like to not live hurried and frantic, but to live in the rest that Jesus provides. Lord, may that permeate through our whole life and may that inform the way that we live each and every day. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.